Our God and our Father, we thank you, O Lord, for your great mercies. We pray that as we consider uh, doctrines that teach us who we are as the church, that we would submit ourselves to your word, that we would strive to understand, that we would strive to be in unity uh, together. And we thank you, Lord Jesus, for praying for unity, praying for the struggles that you knew we would have. And we know that you were even yet at the right hand of the Father making intercession for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, so last week we talked about, um, you know, my paraphrase from uh, the Westminster Confession, chapter 25.4, um, where it talks about, it says that the church is um, from time to time more and at other times less visible in the community. And this is different than the distinction made earlier in the chapter where um, it's talking about the visible and invisible church being the part of the church you can see versus the part of the church you can't see. When it's talking about this, what it is saying is that in its faithfulness, historically, the church ebbs and flows, and it does that um, actually among uh, not just worldwide, but uh, in nations and certainly in communities and unfortunately, certainly even in individual congregations. And, you know, we need to be um, of the mindset ourselves that we need to strive for faithfulness. And uh, as I was doing some additional research beyond just... Um, some of the basic things, the, the supporting verses, as I was doing some other reading, some interesting things came to mind on this. But uh, chapter 25.5 says this, The purest churches under heaven are subject both to mixture and error, and some have so degenerated as to become no churches of Christ, but synagogues of Satan. Nevertheless, there shall always be a church on earth, to worship God according to his will. And so really we have three points here. We'll call them A, B, and C. The first one is um, the purest of churches under heaven are both uh, to mixture and error. And then there are, we'll call point uh, B, that uh, some have gone so far as they're not even the church anymore, and they're actually synagogues of Satan. In other words, um, that they're, they've become so corrupt, um, so detached from God's word and application of God's word, that they are nothing more, even though they have the trappings of Christianity, but actually are um, the places to worship Satan. And then finally, uh, point C, um, there is hope because... There will always be a church on earth. So those are kind of the three points of this, of this uh, one particular subpoint. And so there are some uh, supporting verses there. Could someone look up for the first one? The purest churches under heaven are subject to both mixture and error. First um, Corinthians chapter thirteen, verse twelve. Someone have that? Just verse 12. 
thirteen twelve. So there's just part of the Christian life as we walk with God, as, as we go through the life of the church, um, where we just don't know ourselves. I mean, you think about this. When you first came to know Christ, or you came to a, let's say, true realization, so let's say you were baptized in and you've never known a part of your life where you didn't know who Christ was, when you came to that place where you began to really take hold of your faith, right, um, you began to notice sin in your life. And yet, as you continue to grow, as you continue to strive to be faithful to God's word, what, what does that turn up in your life? Anybody? What does that turn up? What kinds of things? What's the... What's that? More sin, that's right. So... So part of this is, as we, as we, we don't even know ourselves, right? And, and yet, as God's word is brought into our life, it has this transforming work. As we worship God rightly, right, these things begin to, to, to transform us and, and breaks that soil, turns it up, and then we find that, you know, there are sins in our life. And, and if we were to ask some of our older saints, they would tell us that this still occurs even today in their lives. So the, the first issue that we have to recognize is, is that just a matter of having sinners saved by grace, we're going to have this, this type of challenge of mixture and error because it's, a, um, it, you know, it's just the nature of being a Christian, right? Um, now, there's, you don't want to fall in the ditch to say, well, then, oh, well, I don't do anything. No, it's still an actionable item for you to submit yourself to God's word, to press it out each day in your responsibilities. This just reminds us to be in a constant state of humility and repentance, right? That is the Christian life, a constant state of humility and repentance for ourselves and humility towards others, right? We don't, we don't necessarily have to start right out with a hammer to someone's head if we notice that, that there are things that look like sin. Follow the biblical directives, but do it if you're trying to restore a brother uh, with humility, lest you fall into that same sin yourself. There's also a reference point of Revelation 2 and 3. This came up last week, and this is where Jesus himself comes in, and he points out he's talking to all of these churches, and he points out strengths and weaknesses to the churches. 
There's even threats against those that are putting up with all kinds of false doctrine, false teachings. And so um, it's important for us to recognize that this is an ongoing real issue for the church to contend with. Uh, right now, amongst other faithful churches out there, the CREC is striving to be faithful. But unless we guard doctrine, unless we guard the church, unless we say we are going to be in submission to God's word and wrestle that out, we too can fall into these same types of categories. Two and three, the, the whole chapters. Right? All right. And then, of course, we're all familiar with the parable of the wheat and tares. Who would like to read that from Matthew 13, beginning with verse 24? 24 through 30. <laughs> So there, there's a couple of things here. You know, we're familiar with the concept of the wheat and tares if you've been reading your Bible for a while. Um, and it, it's interesting that there's a couple of, of cues in here. One, um, something happened while they slept. Right? The enemy came in while they slept. Now, obviously, God has put limitations on us, and we must go to sleep. But I think there's a greater thing to be considered here. One is... When, when we are not establishing due diligence and watchmen for the church, right? What, what keeps the enemy from creeping in? You've got people that are acting as watchmen on the walls so that they can call out when danger is happening, right? And so um, we must um, personally, and then also as a church, and then largely as the body of Christ in the whole, uh, be continuing to, uh, to, be, to, to be looking for men of God, people of God, to be the watchman to call out the problems. Um, how many guys know who R.L. Dabney was? Um, I, I started uh, reading a book on, uh, that he wrote on philosophy. Uh, he's a uh, 19th century Presbyterian theologian. Uh, he's a uh, you know, has a bad reputation among some because he was a chaplain on uh, Robert E. Lee's staff. Uh, but he did have a really fine understanding, and he actually had a prophetic voice. And <clears throat> it's interesting. I, 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 I'm enjoying the book on philosophy. It's, it has some appeal, I think, because it points to a lot of the problems we're having today and how people think and are approaching things, being driven by their emotions. But uh, he also wrote a book on uh, education and so the other day I was looking to see if I had a, could 
put the, the book I'm reading onto audio and I came across his book on education. And it is, so he's writing this in the 1870s, publishes it, I think, uh, in the 1890s. And you, you just can't imagine how he was a guy standing up, yelling from the rooftops about how um, education is never neutral, right? It's always, it's always catechizing us to something. And there's a whole litany there. I encourage you to read it. I, I can pass the, the, the exact name of the book out. Um, but if you, if you Google it, you could uh, pull that up. All I'm saying is, is that we need watchmen like that. Machen was another one uh, in the 1920s and 30s proclaiming the fact that the church was apostatizing in so many areas. Um, C.S. Lewis is another one who I think often projected um, and saying, okay, here's the implications of this, uh, and, and you know, what we've done instead is uh, we've been asleep. And I say that largely collectively, the church on the whole. So we have to be diligent. Um, the, the second thing is, is uh, at verse 27, so the servants of the owner came and said to him, listen to this now. Sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tares? So in, in this imagery, who sowed the seed? Right? When we're looking at it from a symbolic standpoint. God gave us, the church, the seed to go out there and sow it. Right? And they have the audacity to turn and look to God and say, Hey, how come the seed you gave us, what's up with that? Right? Sometimes in the church we can get that way. I'm going to throw myself under the bus a little bit. Okay? Sometimes we can get real attitudes about um, what we perceive has happened in the church. Um, I had one re relating to um, the, I had a bad attitude for a long time about the church. And I watched how it handled my family following the revival that happened in the 60s and 70s. And I was like, why did they put all these men who had no business as pastors? Why did they do this? Why, why didn't they really disciple? Why did they? Now, there's questions about putting godly men in the pastorship, okay? We really got to guard the pulpits. But, but, you know, I looked at my family's problems and their lack of discipleship. Truthfully, some of it was their own rejection, or I could say our own rejection, not to submit ourselves to Scripture, okay? But... But I, I had this attitude, and I blamed the church alone. And, of course, in recent years, I came to the realization that in a relatively short amount of time, hundreds of thousands of new Christians were born out in this country all at once. Right? Why did God do that? We, well, that's what I was doing. I was saying, what, what's wrong with this? Why do we have all these problems? First of all, shame on me for not submitting to the work of God. Okay? Right? Secondly, God is, is driving us to grow in maturity with Him. Okay? So, so what that means is sometimes, believe it or not, He puts us in places we haven't been before so that we will step up and trust and obey more. Think about parenting. 
Who here was ready the very first day that your first child was born? Right? This is God's natural way of doing things. He puts us in a place to grow and mature. He's always putting us in a place to trust him more, to walk in obedience more. Um, and, and like I said, I was, I'm throwing myself under the bus, and we could get into that much deeper. But I want to point out right here in this parable, there's a level of audacity to go before God Almighty and question what's in his church and what he's doing. Right? And part of the problem was, because re remember, what, what's the scenario? God gave him the seed. He's over here, and it says he came, but while these guys were sleeping, the enemy came in. The implication is really a failure of the church, right? rather than, of course, a failure of God's work. good point. And for those of you at home, talked about how with all the folks coming to know Christ in the 60s, um, that uh, you began to look in for a true church, a pure church, and the challenges. And we had, because of after World War II and the great atrocities that went on in other parts of the world, we had this really pride to ourselves that the sin and the wickedness was out there instead of here in our own hearts. And so, um, are, uh, how many of you guys are familiar with the term the cage stage? Okay. Um, what, somebody out there want to give me a definition of a, a uh, cage stage and how it might apply to um, young Christians? Anybody? So overriding with the view. I'd, I'd also say there's a tendency sometimes in that category to, uh, to disregard older, more seasoned folks in the faith. Now, I think there's two ditches here, right? The older seasoned people could just get relaxed on their laurels and, and have no fire in their belly to move forward, right? And at the same time, that cage stage of I'm going to go out there and what's wrong with you, and kind of grab everyone by the throat, okay? You know, that's sort of what these guys want to do. They, they, they say to God, okay, we got this problem. You want us to go out there and rip it all out? And, of course, God's response is, no, don't do that, because if you just go in willy-nilly with all your power and all your might and you rip it out, what's going to happen? You're going to do damage to faithful Christians. Yes, David. Well, I was just going to say, 
That's right. That's right. And, and, and so I think, I think this is important, um, all of this, just to have a recognition. Um, we can stand firm on our faith. We need to look at our own sin. We need to encourage the body of Christ. And then as much as possible, when, when there is sin out there or you think you see sin or you recognize sin, what's the call? The call is Matthew 18. Go to them yourself. Go to them with humility. Remember that you're to restore them in such a way that you don't fall into that sin. Right? So you go to them. You tarry with them. If they don't listen, if they don't uh, work to reason. And by the way, I want to caution you. You don't look at this as a straightforward one, two, three, check the boxes. Right? Because sometimes, right, unless it's outrageous sin, right, um, and I know all sin is grievous. That's not what I mean. Okay, uh, you don't need to necessarily win them over. Um, you're not winning them anyway, but bringing them God's word and the call to repentance in the first conversation. You might start that at eight o'clock at night, and then it's eleven thirty, and you're, you're getting along. But follow up. Don't just say, "Okay, well, I did that. He didn't just turn on a dime. Let me go get that next person and assault them." Okay. Um, in other words, it takes a little bit of wisdom there as well. And part of this, I just want to remind you, how did God treat you? He didn't come in and hit you with everything all at once. He speaks to you. He calls you. He draws near to you. He corrects you. He does this over time. And again, I'm not saying go to unreasonable lengths, but it is not just one, two, three, and kick somebody out of the church. There is a... a um, a way to do this with patience and care. Um, <clears throat> again, just as uh, in, in terms of moving on here, there's another passage in Matthew chapter 13, a little bit farther down, and verse 47. Someone want to read 47 and 48? So there's just this reminder here that the church is full of sinners saved by grace. Sometimes it's very challenging to determine who are trusting God and, and who's not. Be careful about your overzealousness. Just be careful. We have to sort that out. And by the way, who's the final judge and sorter? God, right? And again, there I'm not saying there's not a place for the elders... <coughs> Excuse me for the elders to uh, um, take a, a moment and then bring about um, bring about discipline to somebody. But but there there is this understanding. We need to look at the church and recognize that there are challenges there. Um, <coughs> so it, it's it's really important for us to to 
look at these things, consider these things. Now, we're going to move on here to our next section. Um, so some churches have degenerated and become no churches of Christ, but synagogues of Satan. Um, there's a number of verses in here, everything from Romans 18, or excuse me, Romans 11, um, beginning of verse 18. And I'll just read this because we're getting close on time. Do not boast against the branches, but if you do boast, remember that you do not support the root, but the root supports you. And this is in reference to looking at historically who God has used to bring about salvation to the world. And in this case, the Romans, Paul is talking about, uh, hey, don't take an attitude about Israel. Don't just look down on them, right? Because you're an outgrowth. You come from the roots, even though, um, you know, he'll say this, you'll say then, then branches were broken off that I might be grafted in. In other words, God chose me, right? There's a lack of humility in, in approaching of this. Because um, he even says, um, and you stand by um, faith. Do not be haughty, but fear. Guard your hearts. Guard your hearts. Um, I'm going to just point out two other verses here. Revelation 2, verse 9. I know your works, tribulation, and poverty, but you are rich, and I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews, and that would be the people of God and are not, but are the synagogues of Satan. And in Revelation 3, verse 9, it says, Indeed, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. Indeed, I will make them come and worship before your feet to know that I have loved you. Right? So there's this, there's this whole tension here of those that claim to be the people of God but are not, and they are as... as uh, basically carrying the, the Lord's name in an emptiness. They got all kinds of, of liturgy. They have all kinds of things, including buildings, the temple, synagogues, all these other things, but they are not the people of God because for them, the Christian faith is a cultural thing. It's a club. It's a social space. It's the place that, you know, just like we recognize if you go back to, to places where the same families have lived in the same place for a thousand years, there are places like that today. When I did missionary work in Peru on mission trips, um, one of the pastors there can trace his family to that same valley that we're in to the 700s. 700 A.D., his family, he's certain, has been in that valley farming it since 700 A.D., right? And praise God, what do we see today? He's a minister of the gospel, preaching and discipling and teaching. What a wonderful thing to see. But, but we can get in a place where this is just traditionally what we do, how we are, and you can have trappings of God, even the triune God, and yet in denial and so we need to be careful of that that's first of all for ourselves guard we need to guard ourselves we need to be as a church repenting of our sin as individuals as a people that's why when we come together to worship on the lord's day we have a group confession right the whole congregation confesses sin together Yes, we sin as individuals, and yes, my individual sin does affect you, 
and yours affects me, but also we are the body of Christ here together on Sunday mornings, and we are confessing our sins um, not just as individuals, but as the people of God. And we need to continue in that humility and recognize uh, its importance. So deal with ourselves first, and then yes, we should speak to our to our brothers and sisters out there. And there's a, a place for a few people to be out on loud bullhorns, people with big platforms calling out sin as sin, right? But that's, for most of us in this room, we're never going to be that person, not likely, right? Where God's going to gift us a big platform to speak to thousands and thousands and thousands all at once, right? But what has he given us? People we work with, our families, people in this community, your next door neighbors, right? And so you love them and you tell them the truth. You love them and you tell them the truth, right? Now you can love somebody and affirm them and, and be nice to them and that doesn't do a thing, right? And you can simply tell them the truth and have words and no action, and that's not going to be effective either. Now, it is the work of God, but God calls us to both love and action, right? Words and action. Kind of like the whole point of the book of James, right? Not the whole point, but a large point of it. Um, finally, um, I want us to also recognize that um, there is, in fact, um, th that the church is going to remain. We don't have to have fear. We don't have to worry how's this going to pan out, right, on the, lo on the larger scale. We, we see in Matthew 16, 18, where Jesus is speaking to Peter. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I'll build my church, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. And, and don't forget how that verse then moves on to, it says, and I'm going to give you the keys, right? He says, I'm going to give you power and authority. But remember that you is y'all, and so it's a plural you. And so he wasn't just talking to Peter anymore. He was talking to the future leaders of the church, and we saw this in our sermon a couple of weeks ago where when Jesus breathed on them, see in, in, in Matthew 16, it's prophetic, right? But in John 20, when he comes and he breathes on them and then he says, I'm now giving you this authority, the church has that authority. It's now standing up and through the power of the spirit, right? The gates of hell will not prevail against it. And we gotta remember that the gates don't move forward. This means that we, by worshiping the Almighty, are assaulting the strongholds of Satan and hell. In our worship, every Sunday morning, when we come in here and we repent of our sins, we respond to God's call, we repent of our sins, we hear God's word, we're cut up, we're rearranged, we're made new by the reading of the word, by the preaching of the word, and then we come to the Lord's table and we're unified and then commissioned to go out. As we do all those things, a lot of times we think, man, we're being commissioned, we're going out, and now the gates of hell are going to be assaulted. No, in this sermon, in this service, 
and in services all across the world as people are worshiping the Almighty, God, through his people, is assaulting and tearing down hell and all of those that love it. So I want us to recognize this is really important. And uh, as we look at this in Psalm uh, 72, it says this, His name, that is Yahweh's name, shall endure forever. His name shall continue as long as the sun. And listen, and men shall be blessed by him, and all nations shall call him blessed. This is a prophetic statement, a surety, but it matches up with Matthew 28, right? That all nations will be blessed, shall call him blessed, right? And men shall be blessed. So if God endures forever, then his created image bearers will last forever some to eternal glory and some to eternal shame but but we don't have to fear is the church going to survive is it going to survive in its iteration as it is right now nope god's going to change it god's going to going to going to do things to drive us to maturity he's going to call out our sin he's going to change us and of course, uh, in Psalm 102, verse 28, it says, The children of your servants will continue, and their descendants will be established before you. And, and again, it's just a surety. The church will remain. You know, I know you've heard me say this. I'm tired of it, I'm sure. Empires fall, and the church remains. And we can be sure of that. Questions or comments? Well, either I'm super thorough or, no, I'm glad I, what's that? <laughs> I, I, I know you're not sleeping here this morning. No, but, it, but listen, it's really good for us to take some time to consider these things. Who is the church? What is the church? What are we called to do? How, how does God instruct us in these things so that we can be edified and we can understand um, our call and who we are? Let us pray. Our God and our Father, we rejoice in you. We thank you for your kindness. Lord, help us uh, to truly love you, to submit ourselves to your word. May we always walk in humility and repentance. Lord, we thank you for your mercy that was realized through the birth, death, resurrection, and ascension of your Son, our Lord, Jesus Christ, in whose name we ask these things. Amen.